right. Well, good morning and grace and peace to each one of you. It's good to gather. How's everyone doing today? Good? Okay, great. Awesome. Well, uh, this morning we have a, uh, the gift of having uh, Dustin and Christina Height back with us. And I think for the third time or fourth time, I'm not quite sure. Third time, yeah. So uh, Dustin and Christina uh, recently completed an 18-month or roughly two-year journey to become or, uh, uh, ordained with the IMC, Illinois Mennonite Conference, uh, as Mennonite pastors. And they're here this morning uh, to, well, to bring the sermon for us, and uh, I'm excited for what they'll have to share with us, but also update us on a little bit about uh, a transition that will most, most likely, 99% chance of happy, <laughs> happening sometime later in 2020, maybe the, uh, early summer. So, um, yeah, so it's just a gift to have them back with us and um, uh, to, to share, with, share with us this morning. And so they'll both be sharing uh, today. And so let's give a warm welcome uh, to both Dustin and Christina Haidt. So um, the title of our sermon actually was mistyped. It's actually Hellfire and Brimstone. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe we can adjust that back there. No. Um, yeah, we're excited to share um, the sermon and a little bit of an update of our lives. So, um, Christina, we'll start us off with the passage from Luke. Okay, yeah, so we're going to get through a couple passages, but I'm going to start in Luke 16. We're going to read from 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury, luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So many use this parable as uh, the rich man wanted to warn his family. They're like, let's send warnings about how we use money and being generous. And um, we're going to go a little different direction. Do I think that it's important to be generous and to share our resources with those that are in need? Definitely. We should leverage our resources to help those around us. But I don't think that's what this parable is primarily about. Um, in verse 20 to 21, it's shed some light on it. It said that um, Lazarus was laid at the rich man's gate. And so I, I wondered, who laid him there? Who laid Lazarus at the rich man's gate? Maybe... Um, maybe it was Lazarus's friends. Maybe the rich man had a reputation for, um, for giving food to beggars. And so they were like, you know what? He's sick. He needs food. Um, probably a, this is a, our, our equivalent of a homeless person. 
And so that maybe Lazarus' friends were like, here, sit here. This man will take care of you. Or maybe, um, maybe the friends chose this man's house because that, that, of that good reputation. Or maybe it was the rich man's employees who placed him there. And they said, the rich man, you know, he, he doesn't mind sharing some of his leftovers. Um, you know, maybe he's there. But at the very least, we know the rich man knows Lazarus' name because he addresses him. He tells, talks to Abraham about him. And so he must have stayed outside the gate for at least a little while. So Lazarus, who is experiencing homelessness and sick with, with leprosy, was allowed to just camp out at this rich man's gate for we don't know how long. How many of us have people sleeping outside on our front porch? You know, it, it makes me wonder, maybe we could even say the rich man is generous um, instead of how this passage is sometimes taught. It's pretty charitable to allow someone in that circumstance to camp out and ask for money as you're, uh, you're trying to wine and dine with fellow aristocrats and kind of, you know, people are going in and outside of your gate. And so maybe, maybe it wasn't a generosity gap for the rich man. I propose that it was a compassion gap, that it was a relational gap, holding Lazarus at arm's length, never pursuing friendship. He was just a, a sick guy out there, never treating him with dignity or welcoming him in. Lazarus, the name Lazarus, was actually the third most common name in that time, in that area. And so it was obviously sentimental to Jesus, with Jesus having the, the brother of Mary and Martha being named Lazarus, so a close friend of Jesus. And it being a common name, it may have brought to mind people that, uh, you know, that's like, a Bill or a Bob for us, you know, that's like, oh, I know someone, that's a cousin, that's a friend, that's a neighbor. And so I think that Jesus intentionally chose that to signify where the rich man's mistake was here. Verse 25 said, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. The rich man focused on his good things and loved his things, but it doesn't seem like he loved Lazarus as a person. So now we're going to look at the passage that we've read this morning, Matthew 25. So that's the one that the kids heard about too. Um, maybe this will help shed a little bit of light on how he could have acted differently. So let's take another look at that, Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, I, I love that passage. I think about it a lot. It's really important to me. Maybe it is to some of you. But one of the things I noticed this time as we were preparing for this um, sermon was that they don't really talk about money in this passage. There are things happening, people being taken care of, needs are being met. But it seems like Jesus, as he's telling this particular parable, is talking about relational scenarios. There are six scenarios. The, three fir the first three ones are um, food, water, clothing, pretty basic needs that need to be met for everybody. Um, but they were carried out personally. You gave, you gave, you clothed. And then the next set, the isolation and sickness and imprisonment, those are all personal needs to start with, um, relational needs. Who usually visits inmates? Family, right? 
and who usually cares for someone who is ill? So we have a hospital system, but also family. If your kid is sick or if your family member is sick, you're a family member taking care, taking care of them. And who gets invited into our homes typically? Close friends and family. So I think that's something to think about. We continue on the passage, verse 37. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And I was struck by that phrase, when did we see you? That they're saying they're, they're, they're there. They were in those scenarios. They didn't say, well, we weren't there. We didn't do those things. But we'd may, maybe we did those things, the righteous, but we didn't see you there. We were, um, we were in that situation, and we demonstrated love in those ways, but we don't remember you being there. Verse 40 says, the king will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. It wasn't until last year that I paid attention to where the comma was in that sentence. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, comma, you did for me. A lot of times we, in, in uh, social justice circles, we shorten this phrase, to the least of these. And instead of, of really broadening the humanity of saying, these brothers and sisters of mine, that's who the king is or who Jesus is talking about. These brothers and sisters of mine, not the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, talking to the disciples. He's saying the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, saying they're part of my family. And to use the, the metaphor of a king, kings are usually the most wealthy, powerful, privileged people in society. They do not interact with the lowlifes or the marginalized or the people who are on the, um, on the outs. Yet this king isn't one to avoid the groups of people that others despise or ignore. This king, our king, doesn't accept the social norm of the haves and the have-nots. The poor for him equal my family. That level of witness and solidarity. I think that's what's missing for the rich man. When we know people and we sit with them, we get to know them, love for them happens naturally. But we must stop long enough to see their humanity. This is our invitation as disciples of Jesus, to be with those in need in such a way that we become like family because we all are children of God. We can talk about broken systems in our world and what causes those, but broken systems are just made up of broken relationships. And we can be part of the healing of that. So I'm going to read a quote from um, a book from, called Tablet to Table. It's about the passage we read to start with. While the rich man helped Lazarus, he failed to form a lasting relationship with Lazarus. He failed to see Lazarus on equal footing with himself. He failed to love the person he was taking care of. He failed to treat Lazarus as a person with head-to-toe human needs and aspirations. This failure toward Lazarus was probably the rich man's failing toward others as well. As charitable as he was, he was self-centered rather than other-centered. He cared about poverty in general, but he wouldn't get his hands dirty with this particular poor man, Lazarus, who was right outside his door. 
he was in Hades because even though he fed Lazarus the charity case, he refused to invite Lazarus the person to the table with him. Jesus expects his followers to do more than ladle out food to the poor. Jesus expects his followers to treat the poor as brothers and sisters and best friends and ladle out love to them as we do our friends and our relatives around the table God has provided us. I love the imagery of a table um, because it's a place where, of course, we have food, but we also gather together and relationships matter there. It's a place for friendship. At the table, you have your physical needs met and you can have your relational needs met. And it seems that the rich man maybe did one of these. Maybe. But when we can open the door of friendship with those who are marginalized in our society and we can actually welcome them in, then their financial poverty can meet our, our privilege in some ways. And then our compassion poverty, which all of us can have, can meet some of their abundance. And then everyone's relational poverty is lessened. We really need each other. So it isn't just a one-way, um, uh, one-directional giving. Just as we long to be seen, we can see the Imago Dei in those around us. Not as a sign holder or a sick stranger or an inmate, but a brother or sister in our human family. In this relational space, something new opens up, a new kind of socioeconomics that's beyond the haves and the have-nots. Something beautiful occurs as we are present to one another. We experience Jesus in that relational space, and we're present um, with God and each other. We restore broken relationships, and we earn new family members that we didn't have before. We find deeper levels of joy and meaning when relationships are formed or deepened, and we all benefit for this. The moments in my life that seemed the most memorable, the most impactful, the most life-giving to me are times when I've spent nurturing relationships with people who I used to not know, and then I got to know them better. People who may have been on the margins, may have been the least of these, but eventually became brothers and sisters of mine. You may have remember our story, but we adopted those two girls, the blondies in the back, um, from foster care. <laughs> and so almost five years ago, we became a family. But before that, they were strangers to us. And we opened up our home, and for the first month or so, it just felt like we were full-time babysitters. And then about a month, it felt like it, it, it turned to where we were a family, and these are our kids. And then they ended up needing a permanent home. And so a couple years ago, then we adopted them. And so they literally became our, you know, our daughters for, for life. And so it's just there's so much beauty in in that movement for us, that they started out as strangers and now they're our daughters. And I think of um, good friends that we've had, some of whom have we met at our um, breakfast club ministry, which is for people experiencing homelessness. And so we have deep friends who've been part of that ministry um, for years that were, they were down on their, their luck and then they, um, they came to our breakfast club. We served them a hot meal on Sundays and we got to know them. And some of those individuals are some of the most caring people for us. It's strange how when we're gone or out of town, next week um, it, it, they'll say, hey, we didn't see you stick around for service. You're at breakfast club because we went there this morning, but, you know, what happened? And it's just amazing the, the level of reciprocity 
that can happen, friendships that can spark where you didn't least expected it. And I just love that, that beauty of earning new family members. Of, it's really just discovering all along that those individuals were our family. We just didn't recognize it at first. We were blind to that. Even to think about the world marginalized means over the border, someone on the other side of a margin or a border. And if we were to step over that border and be with the person who is marginalized, they're no longer marginalized. The border is no longer there because we've just joined them on the outside of the border. And so we can be part of that healing. So we've, of course, we're not perfect at this and you can't be friends or, you know, like treat everyone like family. But the times that we have said yes and somehow chosen to lean in to those times that God invited us to say yes have been some of the, the best times. And I want to do that more and more. Is sacrifice involved? Yes, definitely. Sacrifice of time and resources and emotions. Is it worth it? Of course it is. But I don't even know if we need to be asking that question. Maybe that's the wrong question. Is it worth it? We aren't relational accountants here. We're followers of Jesus. Those relationships, um, the ones I've been referencing with, with the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, had a side benefit of not only testing the fruit of the Spirit in my life, but also being the place where those, the fruit of the Spirit has been nurtured and grown most remarkably, that I can notice and trace back where I've had a little more love, a little more peace, a lot more patience, and a lot more joy in my life. And so I think that's something to remember as well. So here we have another quote from Alan Graham, who wrote a book called Welcome Homeless. And he says this, So what does your vision of humanity and love look like? Whatever the vision, it should look like community. People should feel more alive after they meet you, when your consciousness changes from one of self-absorption to a conscious awareness of its human desire for connection, compassion, kindness, and beauty, you will start seeing things differently, and others will start seeing you made anew as well. Because the absolute greatest self-help occurs when you help others. Like Dustin said, I feel like we've barely tasted this, but, and it's not something we're ever going to achieve, but it's something we can continue to grow in. But when we take steps to know someone, to truly know them, it almost feels like everything just starts coming together. We become more aware of, need, aware of needs, and then we have more compassion. We have our own needs met. We're not asking the question, what is required? What should I be doing? We're just starting to live into this idea of family. Um, I think about what it means, like just my own family I came from. I'm the oldest of three girls, my two sisters. One lives pretty close where my parents live in Clinton, just south of Bloomington. We see her often with her girls. And the other one lives in Los Angeles. She went off to chase her Hollywood dream. She's the youngest. She's a, she's a goal-getter, so she's, she's awesome. I would never have done that. Um, but she comes back only a couple times a year because it's expensive. She doesn't have the job where you can take vacation time. She misses out on pay. Um, so when she comes back for a week, we do our best to hunker down, to all be in one house all at the same time, all 12 of us or 13 or however many people it is. And we just spent as many waking hours as we can together. We stay up way, way too late. We play games. Um, and we don't really think of it as a sacrifice. It's just we love her, and we know it matters to be with her as much as we can. And I think that's what the vision of family can look like. And I know everyone doesn't come from families like that, 
But that's what, that's what a family can look like, and that's what we can create for others and then gain as we welcome new people into our relational spheres. And maybe that seems daunting or overwhelming because it's like, where do I start um, because of the broken systems and all of that? But like Justin said, it's just made up of people. So what I like to think about is just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. I didn't come up with that. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone, but it helps me take it down into something that's tangible and more simple for me to think about. So I'm going to do for one person experiencing hopelessness. I'm going to do, do for one person who's shut in. Do for one person who's a refugee or a migrant. Do for one person that you may see at the food pantry. Do for one foster or adoptive family. Do for one neighbor. Treat that person like your family like a brother or sister, and see where it might take you. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. The truth is, in many ways, we are all the rich person. We could put ourselves in that parable. We pass by our brothers and sisters every day, blind to their humanity and blind to their needs. Who is in the, on the margins of your life that could use a friend? Who sits at your gate with tangible needs that are within your ability to fulfill. We are also all Lazarus. We have deep needs, including the need for connection and belonging. We all want to be seen, known, and cherished, loved for who exactly who we are this minute. And we have all felt less than, ignored, overlooked, or othered at times. We know when we are treated with dignity, like a child of God, or when we are treated like a nuisance. The rich man said to Abraham in, the, in verse 27, send Lazarus to my family. You know, almost like, do my bidding here, even in, in the afterlife. He was treating him a little less than. In other words, make this man give my brothers a warning. But Leonard Sweet said this, the rich man's failure was that he thought he had five brothers when God had actually given him six. And I hope we don't make the same mistake. I hope we see our brothers and our sisters. So we're also here to update you a little bit on what that looks like in our life. And the last few years, we've been in the Peoria area. We've been pastoring Imago Day together. Um, it has looked like church ministry. It has looked like opening our home to new girls. Um, it's looked like a lot of different things. But this next season um, is taking us um, on a little journey elsewhere, an unexpected journey. So um, more than likely, we are moving to Austin, Texas, um, hopefully at the beginning of the summer, and we have an opportunity to serve there in a community called Community First Village. Um, it's something that we weren't super familiar with until this last May when we went to Austin for a trip, and we had an opportunity to tour there, and we just thought, oh, that place sounds really neat. Maybe we could learn something, and maybe we could see what it's like. And then after two and a half hours of being there, um, I got back into the car, and I tend to be um, a talker in our relationship, so I was like, I should not say what I thought. I'll just ask him first. Mm -hmm. So I was like, so what do you think? And he's like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, I think we might be able to do something like that in Peoria. And I was like, I think we should move here. <laughs> <laughs> Immediately, yeah. Yeah, and I, then I started bawling my eyes out. Um, and I said, seriously, there's something, there's something inside of me that is like gripped by this place. And it's a pretty, it's a pretty impressive place. Um, so we wanted to make sure it wasn't just impressed by the mission that they do. What they do there is they um, help people who've been chronically homeless. We're talking people who've been on the streets for years, decades. Some people have been on the streets for 30 years in Austin, a really big homeless population there. 
and they have built a tiny home community. So they give people um, the opportunity to rent this a tiny home in this beautiful village they've created where they have tons of other opportunities there as well. Um, and the biggest thing that they're working on in this community that is all privately funded, um, started by five businessmen, several of which who live on site right now in their own tiny home. It's, it's a phenom phenomenal place. Um, and they um, basically say, we know you need a home. Of course they need a home. But more what, than what people need is not just a place to live, but it's a place to be who they are and to gain community. And so they really focus on community first, right? Not just a house, but a place to belong. So we are looking for, there's the community garden right there. Um, they're on phase one right now, the four phase project where their intent is to be able to house 1,200 people, um, which was their like point in time count a few years ago for how many people who are actually living outside in Austin. Their population is much bigger than that, and they have other services who take care of women um, with children and families. So this is mostly single people. Um, and yeah, they're looking to expand, and then they invite people who have never experienced homelessness to come in as missionals. And so um, we started, after they came back to Peoria after this life-changing, unexpected trip, started talking so much back and forth and just thought, we need to ask more questions about what it looks like to go live there intentionally. And so I made Dustin make the phone call because I don't do that. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, so he called and they were like, you live where? And you want to move here? They, the, no one's ever done this. No one's ever moved from a different state and joined them. But we feel very compelled. So. We started praying about the mission opportunity um, last summer. And it was like uh, part of why it's um, unique for, for us is because a lot of their volunteers will just come on a Saturday and they'll help in the community garden. There's an art studio, there are goats and chickens, there's all kinds of opportunities for um, some of the residents to have small jobs that, that, that fit their skill level. You know, if they have a disability um, or some mental illness, that there's a job that's catered for them to help them feel some recovery, some sense of, of dignity and purpose. As they're having relationships, they're also finding their purpose and their niche in the community. And so there's all kinds of things like this. There's outdoor kitchens, outdoor playgrounds, um, picnic tables, just to really spark, to be a catalyst for those relationships, that people can come together and rebuild trust and friendship um, and uh, move out of the survival mode to back to thriving and some recovery. And so in some ways, we feel like God has put us on a little bit of a parallel path in, in Peoria being part of our breakfast club ministry, and journeying with people who've been on a similar road, um, but they just are, they do such a holistic um, approach here that it, it really, we're excited to join in the good thing that God is doing there. Um, so yeah, so we'll be living in a tiny home, the four of us, and uh, we'll be downsizing, and, and we'll be sitting around a lot of tables, and um, just talking with people and experiencing that mutuality of relationship. And uh, we'll be discovering a lot of brothers and sisters that we never knew before. So we're excited to uh, start on this venture, and we just invite you to pray for us as we take these steps. And, um, and yeah, just share, and I wanted to share our excitement. So this last photo, I'll just end with this. This is a lady named Linda, and while we were there in September, we went back in September, we wanted to take our girls and make sure that when we were there with all four of us, it felt right. Um, that we still felt like God was in it and that it made sense. And the girls had a great time. They're not very, they're really social. So um, <laughs> they immediately just jumped right in. And this was during a house blessing. They always, as people get their new tiny home, they do a house blessing. And so um, this is Linda. They had met her 10 minutes previously to this. 
and Linda is not able to see her own grandkids. She has rough relationship with her own kids and grandkids, and so she was just in, just over the moon to have some younger kids there to be able to welcome her into the community. So we gave her bread and salt and all the, the traditional housewarming gifts. But we're just to, looking forward to being a, our whole family being able to minister together there. So we appreciate had, your prayers. Yeah, she had been sleeping under a bridge for four years, yeah. and so she's excited about this new new adventure and the girls having been homeless themselves, um, are also excited about being part of this ministry. Um, they, they literally were at the Salvation Army in Peoria for a season before they were with us. And so we're excited about even sparking their compassion and providing a place for that to be nurtured as well. We don't, it's not just us, it's really, it's a full family um, mission opportunity. So we're excited. Thanks for letting us share.